Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. First Corinthians 13. Well, once there was a man who was walking down a well-trodden path on his way down to Jericho. It was a hot and dusty day as this man journeyed through those rocky, barren hills. This was a, a dangerous journey because it was extremely hot Also because it was a long distance away, but even more so, there were thieves that often lurked in the shadows. And suddenly, as this man was walking down this path, his worst fear came true. Thieves blindsided him. They knocked him to the ground. They punched him in the face. They kicked him. They ripped off his clothes, stole his money and valuables, and they left him for dead. The unfortunate man was left there, sprawled out in the middle of the road, bleeding and unconscious. While the hot sun beat down on him, life was being sucked out of him, and his life was in the balance. And it just so happened another traveler came walking down that road, and he was a priest. He had just finished ministering and caring for souls in the temple But as the priest looked at that man in the road, he saw that unfortunate man bleeding in the hot sun. He turned his face away. You see, he had a schedule to keep. He had things to get to in the town he was going to. He didn't have time for this man. In fact, it was a a little bit of a messy situation. He thought about how maybe those, that, that blood would stain his holy garments, or maybe he might get dirt on his priestly robes. And so the priest justified himself an excuse and gave himself an excuse to not stop and help this man. The priest walked away on the other side. And soon another religious man came down that path, and it was a Levite. He also served in the temple. He did more manual labor in the temple. And so as he gazed over at that suffering man, he considered that he also had a long journey. I mean, he just had spent weeks and and days and hours in the temple ministering. He'd already put his time in for God, and this guy was going to be an inconvenient time for him if he stopped. Plus, nobody would really see if he just walked on by, so he pretended that he didn't see the man. Traveling behind these religious men was a Samaritan, a half-breed, a societal reject. He wasn't allowed in the temple, let alone to serve in the temple. And yet as this Samaritan man came upon this one who was suffering, he showed him God-like love. The Samaritan man rushed to his side. He reached in his pack He pulled out wine and oil and clean cloths and he used those to wash the man's wounds, to dab up his lacerations and bandage him. 
Luke chapter 10, Jesus used a story like that of this Samaritan man as an example of one who showed Christian love. The Samaritan man was patient. Think about that. He was patient as he, he stooped over this suffering man and labored in the hot sun. The Samaritan was kind as he cradled his head and body. The Samaritan man denied himself of his time, his possessions. He was not doing this to boast. He was not being selfish. He was not resentful. The Samaritan lifted the pitiful man upon his donkey. He bore him up. The Samaritan brought him to an inn so he could be he could recover there. He gave a caretaker probably around $500 to nurse the man back to health. The Samaritan believed in this man. He hoped in his recovery. He endured inconvenience without expecting anything in return. And Jesus taught in Luke chapter 10 that the greatest commandment is to love, to love God and to love one another. And he used this Samaritan man to demonstrate to us what it means to love in a Christ-like way, to love your neighbor. And the Levite and the priest, they were examples of men who did not view love as their greatest priority. Their most important priority was to get to their next destination. It was their time. It was their schedule. Their priority was to protect themselves, to save their own reputation. But the Samaritan demonstrated love, and that was his greatest priority. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul echoed Jesus' teaching that love must be your greatest and most important priority. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 once again, really for the last time. 1 Corinthians 12, 31, Paul introduces chapter 13 by declaring love is the most excellent way to live. Verse 31, earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. 1 Corinthians 13, therefore, says the most excellent way, the most important way to live is to love. And chapter 13 answers why love must be the priority in a church like this and in your home and in your other relationships. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 13, we looked at verses 1 through 3 in verses 1 through 3, instruct us that love must be your most important priority because love gives life and ministry value. Ministry without love is just a bunch of empty words. It's wasted energy. If you go through the motions of ministry, if you teach or serve or help and you don't truly love, you're wasting your life. You and your ministry mean nothing. And that's verses 1 through 3. And then verses 4 through 7 teach that love must be 
your most important priority because love edifies. In those four verses, verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, we see 15 verbs that demonstrate what Christian love is to be like. And then today we are in verses 8 through 13 where we're going to see that love must be your most important priority because love lasts forever. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 13. Would you stand with me as I read this text of Scripture out loud? We're going to stand in reverence to God's Word. And as I read it out loud, would you, in your heart and mind, read it and ask God to use this in your life? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8. The Word of the Lord says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith and hope and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Father, I pray that we will be a church, that we will be believers, that we will be citizens of this country, we will be neighbors that truly love like Christ loves, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Love never ends. Love lasts forever. What does that mean in verse number eight? Love never ends. Well, the word ends means to cease, to fall down, to stop. The word is used of sparrows in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. Sparrows that fall to the ground and die. And of course, God, our heavenly father, he sees every sparrow, even the ones that seem insignificant and fall down and their life ends. We have a cat in our house, and sometimes he goes out of our house, and he likes to kill birds. And it's sad, isn't it? Do you have a cat that does that? We don't want him to do that, but often we find a bird in the backyard that he has killed. And that's really sad to see those little birds like that. God sees every bird that falls. And those sparrows, they have an end. The truth is, everything in this world will come to an end. Everything you own, think about it, everything you own will either be thrown in the trash or someone else will own it someday. There's a 100% turnover rate for every human. Every person will have a time when their body ends and they will die. 
There's only one thing that continues after death for you, and that will be your soul. And the text says that something else continues on beyond this world, and that is love. And those two things, your soul and love, matter most because those last forever. That's what this text is teaching. And friend, if you're in here today and you don't know 100% certain where you will go after you die, I want you to know this. The scripture says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, that these things were written so you may know that you have eternal life. You can know for certain. Our faith, our biblical faith in the Bible and what God's word says isn't a cross your fingers faith. It's a cross-centered faith, a faith in Jesus who hung on the cross because of love and he died for our sins because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him does not have to perish, does not have to go to hell, but can have eternal life. And so our faith is in a God who loves enough to send his son to rescue us. And the scripture says that God offers his love to those who believe that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. And so this text puts life in perspective. What really matters in life is your soul and Love, love is permanent, love is eternal, love never ends. And here's a question, why is that? Why is it that love never ends, it's eternal? And the answer is because love is the very nature of God. God is eternal and God is love, therefore love is eternal, it will never end. God did not create love. There was not a day when God decided to start loving. God has always been love. Love's origins are sourced in the very nature of the eternal God. All love comes from God. All love continues on in and through God. And so love, God, is love. And let me ask this question. So you're going to have to put your thinking caps on and use your brain for a couple moments here. Who did God love before he created? God loved the world, so he sent his son. But who did God love before creation, before he created time and space and you and I? What's the answer? Well, the answer is God loved himself. Now, you might hear that and you think, that sounds like God is selfish. Well, it would be. If God was just one being and one person, then God would be a selfish God because all God could love is himself for eternity and there's only one person to love. But actually God is not just one being and one person. God is one being in three persons. And that's why God not only has the ability, but God is love because God has loved for eternity. The Father has always loved the Son. The Son has always loved the Father. The Father and the Son have always loved the Spirit. There's been this family love for eternity. And so God is love. God is eternal. And love has always been and love always will be because love is rooted in the nature of God. 
And, and the truth is this, there's, there's no other religion, there's no other religion that can have a God like this. And most importantly, because this is the one true and living God. Amen? So what matters most in this world, what, what matters most in this church, what matters most in your family, what matters most in your life is what has mattered most for eternity. And what is that? It's love. So in this text of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul keeps knocking on the door of your heart to remind us that the most important thing in your life is love. So why does Paul need to keep addressing this? Why is this something he goes over and over? Why does he need to address the importance of love? And the answer is because we think other things are more important than love. We are like that priest and that Levite, and we're, we're self-centered. We look at our own life, and we don't look out and love God and love other people. We look at our time, and we value our time above loving God and other people. We value religious activities even above loving God and other people. And sometimes even our families are a priority over God, loving him, loving others. And this lack of love was pervasive in the Corinthian church. If you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 7, the scripture says, Paul says that, you did not lack any spiritual gift. So speaking to the Corinthian church, they had every spiritual gift that the scripture includes to the max. And yet they did not use, many people did not use those gifts to love people. They used them to exalt themselves. And so you can see in verse number eight, three of those spiritual gifts that the church used to exalt themselves instead of using to love people. Look at verse number eight. He says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So here Paul contends that love must be your priority because love never ends. But the gifts of prophecy, the gifts of knowledge, the gifts of tongues, they will have an end someday. And are those gifts important? Absolutely they're important. But what he's saying is they're going to come to an end and love will continue on. So the most important thing is love. In fact, notice in 1 Corinthians 12, go back to 1 Corinthians 12. Notice these three spiritual gifts listed in the uh, spiritual gifts list. So 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8, you can see that the gift of knowledge, the utterance of knowledge is listed in 1 Corinthians 12, 8. Or you can say the gift of the words of knowledge. The gift of knowledge was the Holy Spirit's ability, uh, Holy Spirit-given ability to understand and communicate truth. So is the Holy Spirit giving someone the ability to understand and communicate truth? Then you look in verse number 10, you can see the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy is a broad term of speaking for God, 
Prophecy literally means to speak forth. So it can include new revelation. It can include foretelling the future. And so I think in the, in the church of Corinth, that's what you see. Prophecy would have included that for them because remember, they did not have the rest of the New Testament. They did not have the apostles' teaching written down like we do. And so that would have been included in that local church. Prophecy also includes someone preaching God's word or teaching God's word or even, I think, even giving a testimony of God's work in your life. And I think that those are kind of the applications that we see for prophecy in our church today. In other words, we don't need to proclaim new revelation because we have God's sufficient word here for us. We have the rest of the New Testament and so prophecy does not include for us today new revelation or foretelling the future, but we do see the gift of prophecy, what I'm doing right now, or what these men and some of the women did in the children's class down there. They taught the word of God. The other gift listed is the gift of tongues, and you can see that in verse number 10 of chapter 12 as well. And with each of these gifts, there's a complementing gift. So you have the gift of tongues. You have the, the gift of someone being able to translate that. The gift of tongues was the supernatural ability to speak another language that the speaker did not know. And if you wanted to, you could go to Acts chapter 2 and you could see an example of that. But just think about how incredible it would have been to be in this church with those supernatural gifts, people standing up and being able to speak authoritatively for God. That's pretty amazing to think about. You can imagine then how pride and competition could easily infect a church like that as believers were able to speak in remarkable ways on behalf of God. And this church was growing in their knowledge of God. They had gifted preachers and teachers and apostles. This church had an explosion, really, of special revelation. It was as if, through their gifts, the library of heaven filled up the church. But instead of using those gifts to love the church, many used those gifts to puff themselves up. That's what you see in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1, where the scripture says, Paul says, love, or knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And there's the contrast there. Knowledge is not bad. He's not saying knowledge of God is bad at all. But what he's saying is that they were using the knowledge of God to exalt themselves. But he was saying you actually need to take the knowledge of God and use that to exalt other people or build other people up and ultimately glorify God. And here's the point. The knowledge of God is important. Prophecies are important. Tongues were important. But all of those gifts were to be used to love. Not gifts to use for yourself, but gifts to bless other people. That's love. And love is what will last. And so what he's saying here is prophecies and tongues and knowledge, they will go away at some point, but love will continue on. And so what I want you to see this morning is that love lasts longer than the special revelatory gifts. 
I think that's what he's saying in verse number 8 and 9 and 10. In fact, notice in verse number 8. Let's examine this for a moment. Look at verse 8 and notice the ending of these gifts. So notice the two verbs following the gift of prophecies and knowledge. And notice the same verbs. So verse 8. As for prophecies, they will pass away. Or your translation may say, they will be done away. And then as for knowledge, it will pass away. Again, those are both the same verbs in the Greek. And those two verbs are future. That means it's going to happen someday in the future. It's an indicative, which means the fact. It's certain. It's going to happen. And this is the interesting part. It's a passive, which means that something else will end the gifts of prophecy and knowledge. So the idea is that someday those two gifts will end and something's going to end that. And so the question is, what will end the gift of knowledge and of prophecies? And you can find that in verses 9 and 10. So look at verses 9 and 10. He says, for we know, so there's that gift of knowledge, we know in part, we prophesy in part, again, the the gift of prophecy, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And notice that word pass away. That's the same verb we saw in verse number eight. So verse 10 teaches that when the perfect comes, the perfect will end the need for the gifts of prophecy and knowledge. And so here's the question that people have been asking for the last 2000 years. What is the perfect? And I'm sure that's what you're asking as well. Maybe not. Maybe you already think you know. So, and if you do, praise God for that. Let me give you some ideas that people have on this. Some believe the perfect is the completion of the canon of the 66 books of the Bible. Some hold that it's the maturing of the church. Some think that it's the second coming of Christ. And I'm just going to tell you my conclusion, okay? We're not going to go into all those other ones. My conclusion is the perfect is the perfect eternal state that starts in Revelation chapter 1. I'm not talking about a state like California. Most of you don't think it's perfect, but neither is Tennessee, okay? We're talking about a perfect reality, okay? There's a, there's, a, there's a reality that God will create in Revelation 21. It's the perfect eternal state. So the perfect is the perfect restored new creation. It's the new order of existence that will last forever. Revelation 21 says that God will create a new heaven and a new earth. Imagine that. I mean, can you imagine? Just think about our earth and how beautiful it is, the heavens and the earth. I mean, that's incredible. God is going to create a new heaven and new earth, and for eternity, we will live on that. That's amazing. And the scripture goes on to say in Revelation 21.3 that the dwelling place of God will be with humanity. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's amazing to think about, isn't it? Now, keep that in mind as we go through this idea of what the perfect is. The primary reason I believe the perfect is that perfect state of reality is because the gift of knowledge and the gift of prophecy will be necessary through the church age 
which we are in right now, through the tribulation, also even into the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ, those things will still be necessary gifts that God will give. And so what I think what the scripture is teaching here is that when the perfect state of reality, when God creates a new heaven and new earth, there will be no more of a need for the gift of knowledge and prophecy. So notice in verse number nine, Paul writes, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. So our knowledge of God, our ability to speak to or for God is just partial. And we have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament. Second Peter chapter three, verse one says that, that this right here is sufficient. Like it's able to help us know how to live life for God. So, and, and it's, when the scripture speaks of the knowledge of God, we find out about the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. And so that's what first, second Peter one, three says that God has given us what we need for life and for godliness. So we do have the sufficient old and new Testament, but do you realize the, the scripture doesn't contain all the knowledge of God? I mean, there's so much more about God that we don't know. I mean, this is like, this is like the tip of the iceberg right here. I mean, this is like studying the Amazon rainforest. And, you know, think about the Amazon rainforest, how huge it is, how many species there are, just the, the amazing complexities of that. But then you only have a few plants to study. So you're going to study the Amazon rainforest and you only are able to examine and to maybe put under a microscope the leaf of a, of a few plants. And yes, you can learn a lot about the Amazon rainforest, maybe from those type of plants, but there's so much more to learn, right? And that's what I think we find here with the scriptures. Yes, we can know about God and we can know everything we need to know in this life about God, but there is so much more to know. And I, how do I know that? Well, God's infinite, so it's going to take infinity for us to know him. And so verse 9 teaches that our knowledge, our current knowledge and prophecy can only be in part. And verse 10 teaches that when God institutes the perfect eternal state, those gifts will no longer be necessary. So what about tongues? Look at verse 8. Tongues, the scripture says, will cease on their own. Verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. That verb, will cease, is a different verb than the will pass away. And it's really key to understanding what happens with tongues. The verb will cease is in a future. So it's future from the writing of 1 Corinthians. It's indicative, it's a fact, it's going to happen. But this actually verb is in the middle, which means it's something that is going to cease on its own. So prophecy and knowledge, God will bring to an end when he creates the new heaven and new earth. But at some point along the way in history, the tongues will cease on their own. That's what the scripture is teaching here. So here's the question. When has or when will that happen? And what's the answer? Well, the truth is, the scripture just doesn't say. And, and that's where the debate comes in. Because there are people who believe that the gift of tongues has continued until today. My personal belief is that the gift of tongues ceased 
at the end there of the first century. I believe the a biblical understanding of tongues and a proper view of church history will lead one to conclude that tongues ceased on their own when they were no longer needed. Well, why were tongues needed? Well, tongues were for unbelievers. That's what 1 Corinthians 14 speaks about. They were for unbelievers, and it was a sign that the gospel message was truly from God. And it was in that time in the New Testament that that was given. And then eventually it ceased on its own. Let me add another note. I read this. I thought this was a good point. Some people view tongues as a heavenly language. And if that was the case, if that is, that, if that is the case, then the scripture says here that that will cease. So if, if heaven's language is tongues, then there will be a day when the language of heaven is no longer spoken and heaven will go silent. So even the logic of that is that clearly the scripture demonstrates in the book of Acts that it's actually their real languages being spoken but also even just this text right here indicates that that gift will, be, will cease someday and therefore it can't be a heavenly language. But if you got lost along the way, can I just tell you to come back? <laughs> and here is the main point I want you to know, and that is that love lasts longer than any special revelatory gifts. Love is what matters. It's what lasts. We have a lot of things in our life that we think are very important. A couple weeks ago, I was sitting at the table with my family, and we try to almost every night, even if it's late, have a time around the table that we can spend as a family. And sometimes we also read scripture and do other things like that. And I'm sitting at the table with my family, and they're laughing, and it's a lot of fun, and I am completely zoned out. I'm thinking about something that's going on in my life, and it like somewhere along the way clicked in my brain. Where are you at? <laughs> Here are the people that you are to love. And isn't that how it is sometimes? I mean, it's like, oh, that's a really important thing. I just got to figure that out. No, you're at the table with your family. Like now, Ben, is the place and the time to love your family. Yesterday, we went to the fair and... Um, you know, there's, we're setting up the booth for the church so we can, you know, pass out things and talk to people. And so, you're, you know, you're out there busy doing that. And I'm walking down the road, talking on the phone with my wife, trying to figure out birthday parties and things like that. And at one point, you know, and then I'm also trying to think about what am I going to preach on tomorrow, right? Not really that, but like trying to think about that. <laughs> and, you know, so I'm preaching on love. And here I am standing around a bunch of people. And we're supposed to be giving the gospel to these people. And I'm on the phone trying to figure out other things, and those things are important. You know, getting our kids from one place to the next are important, is important. But then I, it's just dawned on me. I'm like, I thought, Ben, these are people that you're here to give the gospel to and talk about Christ. And so the idea is, is that there's something more important, and that is love. Preaching, teaching, those are important. Being on time, do you think that's important? Some people do. Some people don't. Getting things done in your house, cleaning your house, getting your kids' school done, their homework done, are those things important? But what matters above all those things? The scripture says it's love. I heard a story once, and I, I might have told this before, but I thought it was appropriate for this sermon. I heard a story of a pastor who finished preaching a sermon and 
he felt like it went pretty well. And afterwards, there was a man on the front row, and someone said, we would like you to talk to this man about the gospel. And so he sat down next to this man who was interested in the gospel. And as he sat down next to him, he began to smell a very foul odor. And he looked at this man and realized this man was a very filthy, dirty, smelly man, and he just felt like he was going to lose his lunch. And so he tried to think of like, an excuse for how he can get out of this and get out of there. Maybe he can get one of the other elders or deacons to come and give the gospel to them. He's ready to be done. But then the Holy Spirit brought this to his mind, and that is, this is what love smells like. And he wanted to try to find an excuse to leave, but the Holy Spirit kept nudging his heart to love this man, to stay, listen, give him the gospel, and actually enjoy being with him, love him like Christ, and enjoy the smell of love. The smell of love is often not found in the applause of people. The smell of love is often found as the Holy Spirit prompts you to give up your time and your comfort for another person. For Jesus, the smell of love smelled like blood and spit on his face. Jonathan Edwards wrote this, Every saint in heaven is like a flower in the garden of God. And holy love is the fragrance and the sweet odor that they all send forth. And with the fragrance of love, they fill paradise above. Isn't that beautiful? So eternal glory will smell like love. And oh, that we could savor that smell of love on earth. Love must be your most important priority because love lasts beyond those special revelatory gifts. And love must be your most important priority because love lasts into the perfect, into the perfect eternal state. Notice verse number nine. Verse nine of chapter 13. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but verse 10, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Once we enter into the eternal, perfect new earth, we'll leave our Bibles at the door of heaven, right? We will not need prophecy or the gift of knowledge anymore because we are going to see God face to face in the person of Jesus Christ. And so in verse 11, he gives an illustration. In fact, he gives two illustrations to demonstrate this. Verse 11, he says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. So the imagery here is that in this life, we are like immature children. Now, I think I've told you this before, that I love teaching four- and five-year-olds. It's my favorite age because they believe everything you say and they're potty trained. So both those together are wonderful. So my kids were that age. I loved that age, and I still love, I love the age they're at now, but that was just a special age. I can remember one time my wife and I teaching a class at Calvary, 
in Simpsonville, and we were teaching the four- and five-year-olds class. It was the hardest one to find a teacher for, so it seemed like we were the default teachers. But the kids were arguing about Superman and Spider-Man and all these, you know, and some of these kids thought they were real, right? Because that age, they think that men in red suits and they actually live in the North Pole, you know, and things like that. And so, but the point is, they were, they're immature, right? They, they believe almost anything. And, but as they get older and as they are hopefully now older, they don't believe those things anymore because they have matured. And so that's the idea here. Look at verse number 11. He says, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. In other words, just like a child matures, in the future perfect day, we will be fully mature and be able to know God as a spiritually mature person. So now we're immature, but hopefully we're maturing, right? But someday we will be fully mature mature. And then Paul gave another illustration, verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly. The mirrors back then were not as clear as our glass mirrors today. So if you wanted to see yourself, you might squint to look in a dim mirror. Think about a spoon. You know, you take a spoon and you're going to fix your hair with a spoon. That was, that was somewhat similar to what they would have experienced back then for the average person. It was a dim reflection of the person that they were looking at. And so he says in verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly in an enigma in a riddle, but then face to face. There's a difference between looking in a, a blurry spoon at a face and looking directly at someone's face. And so that's the picture he gives here. The illustration is that now we are looking at Jesus in God's word. And as you see Jesus in God's word, there's a bit of a mystery to it. It's like it's, it's a little dim, right? It's, you're not seeing him face to face. And so it's like, a, it's like a dim mirror. There's a little bit of a riddle to it. In fact, think about this verse in 2 Corinthians 3.18. The scripture says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror. What's that talking about? It's talking about God's word, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, the glory of Jesus Christ, so we can see Jesus, what he's done for us, who he is. We can see who we are, that we are sinners. We're in need of the gospel. We're in need of being saved from our sins. And so... We behold in the mirror the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image. That's the image of Jesus. Notice we're being transformed from glory to glory. It's progressive. There's a maturing aspect to our sanctification. And he says, just as from the Spirit of God. So right now in this life, the Holy Spirit is transforming our minds and our hearts and our lives through the word of God as we see Christ in the scriptures. That's what's happening now. But then verse number 12 here says that there will be a day when we will see him face to face. And oh, what a difference that is. Because right now we look at the scripture and we say, okay, this is what the Bible says very, very clearly about Jesus very clearly about God, but there's some things we just really don't completely understand. So notice verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. 
Now I know in part, and that's through God's word, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now this phrase, I shall know fully, does not mean that you become omniscient. Some people have taken that to think that when they see the Lord Jesus Christ and they receive their brand new body, that all the knowledge of God will be downloaded onto their brain and they'll know everything God knows. Well, that's impossible. That's not what this verse is saying. What this means is you will have the ability to know with full understanding. No longer will the knowledge of God have riddles and have a mystery to it, but no, you will see God face to face. God will speak directly to you. The reality will be open to you and you will understand it. I think about it like this. When I first came to South, or when I first came to California, someone told us about Knott's Berry Farm. And, you know, I heard about the Boysenberry Festival and all that. And I grew up in Indiana. So I'm thinking of like the state fair. And so I'm, I'm picturing this farm with, you know, trees and maybe some bushes and next to Disneyland. You know, Disneyland has all the rides and Knott's Berry Farm is, is what, you know? So then I went online, of course, and looked at pictures and video. And I was like, oh, okay, there's some things going on. But still, like, what's this Boysenberry Festival and all that kind of stuff? And so I, I had a better understanding of it, but it's still a riddle to me, you know? But then we went in person, and it was like, oh, wow, I know, this is what this is. The Boysenberry Festival is just a way to sell a bunch of odds and ends, you know? <laughs> Where's the berries at? I don't really know, but it's in all the things they're selling, I guess. But th- there was a difference between reading it online and seeing the videos and then going in person, and that's what this is talking about. Right now, it's like, we can see dimly. We can see, we can see the truth. We can know the truth. But then there will be a day when we stand in the presence of Christ and we will know and we will be able to understand. I would think about it like this. It'll be, it'll be better than Knott's Berry Farm. That's for certain. That's right. I think about it like this. What are angels like? I mean, the scripture describes angels, right? I mean, there's a somewhat of a description of them, different classes of angels. What, what do angels say? What are, what's their language? Well, we just don't know. But then there will be a day when you will stand in glory and you will actually see an angel. Do you understand? So there's, there's going to be a fuller understanding of the reality of God. Amen to that. So in the eternal perfect state, knowledge will be an important aspect. It will be important for us to know God, but even still, there's going to be something more important, and that is love. And so love lasts into the perfect eternal state, and love lasts as the supreme eternal virtue. Love lasts as the supreme eternal virtue virtue. Look at verse number 13. For now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest, the supreme, the greatest of these is love. Right now, we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is our Lord and Savior. We have faith that he has saved us 
and that we have the promise of a hope in heaven. We have hope. In other words, we expect that God will fulfill his promises, but in the eternal state, hope and faith will be gone. And you know what remains is love. That's what he's talking about here. Love is what continues on. I mean, what will you be doing in one million or 10 billion years from now? You know what you'll be doing? You'll be loving God and loving other people. See, love is what continues. And so love must be now your most important priority because love lasts as the supreme eternal virtue. And so let me end with a question. Does love characterize your life right now? Does love characterize your life right now? I mean, if your sense, I should say, since your eternal existence and joy will be characterized by love, are you this past week, this morning, are you abiding in the love of God? I mean, love for God means that you value him above all else. You love his truth so much that you're willing to give up your life to live according to the truth. You love God so much that you actually, in the trial, see it as good because God gives you the greatest good, and that is himself. Love for God means you enjoy him as the greatest of all pleasures. Love for God means you believe that you don't deserve his love, but he has loved you anyway. Love for God means that you live for Christ because you love him and you look forward to death because you get to love him perfectly forever. And love for God means that therefore we love other people. Are you so filled with the love of God that you just overflow with love for other people? And then that's what it means when love characterizes your life. I mean, is what matters to you when you walk into a Sunday like this is what matters to you what you get or how you can give to other people in love? Is what is important in your home that everyone meets your demands or that you can serve people out of love? What is most valuable to you? People applauding you? Are you getting to love other people when no one else knows? Does love characterize our life? Faith and hope and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. May we love one another. Let's pray.